Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, good to see you again. We're doing another extra episode this week yeah. because uh, it just feels like there's been a lot. Yeah, I mean, it's it's been like not even three days and it feels like it's been three weeks. Yeah, so it's 5.15 Pacific time on Thursday. Uh, things we're going to talk about today, President Zelensky's speech to Congress on Wednesday, uh, the latest on U.S. assistance to Ukraine, including weapons transfers, Vladimir Putin's terrifying, bizarre yeah. authoritarian rant, um, peace talks and attacks on civilians. And then I just have to do it, Ben. I know this is a serious foreign policy show, but I just need to talk about bad faith attacks from Republicans and press coverage because yeah. I'm starting to lose my mind. Yeah. Well, I mean, unfortunately, that's part of the background noise that, that we're going to be dealing with. That will never escape. Yeah. And then, Ben, you spoke, uh, you did an interview this morning with the youngest member of Ukraine's parliament. Uh, can you tell us a bit about the conversation? Yeah, I talked to Vyadislav Yurash, who's the youngest uh, member of parliament um, in Ukraine. He's 26 years old. Wow. And he was um, incredibly close to the young journalist who was killed. Um, was she with the Fox News crew? She was with the Fox News yeah. crew. Um, and so we talked about her. Um, and I think it kind of, you know, in a war, you start to hear about casualty numbers. It's, I think, important to kind of dig into the lives of some of the individual people to remind you just how much is behind those numbers. Um, and then he talks about, uh, I think very eloquently about his generation. It's a generation of Ukrainians who were born after Ukrainian independence um, mm -hmm. and led the protests in the Maidan in 2013-14 that kind of consolidated uh, Ukrainian democracy uh, and the role he's playing now. And he is, you know, he, he said to me, like he he's never had military training until he got his weapon, you know, at yeah, the man. beginning of the war, and he's providing a humanitarian relief on the front lines and really risking it all. Um, and so if you want to hear a really raw um, depiction of what it's like to, to lose somebody, to be in the middle of it, uh, to be fighting for something you believe in, um, it was a really powerful conversation. His tweets about her and losing her were just gut-wrenching. Yeah, I mean, you could tell... Um, this was like, you know, as important to him as anybody in his life, you know, and uh, and they're at that young age where, um, you know, they probably thought they had so much time. You yeah. Know? Uh, and and that, that that's just the, the horror of this this war. I mean, like radicalized is like a, is an almost pejorative term. But I, I wonder if Vladimir Putin ever thinks about how he has radicalized a generation of Ukrainians against him, against Russia against any sort of acquiescence to their leadership or oversight or rules. I mean, it's uh, not not that the, the country was like uh, particularly welcoming of invaders. They have a long history, as we've discussed. But my God. Yeah, no, I think that's I mean, I think that's an important point uh, because, you know, he said uh, and some of you may have seen this and without knowing that, that this was the guy, 
he tweeted about her yesterday. And, and again, we should say her name, Alexandra Kushnoyev. Um, uh, and he said, uh, her I loved, decade of happiness and sadness, joy and pain, meaning and loss, only death could have parted us. Now I learned to hate. Yeah. You shall never be forgotten. They shall never be forgiven. Uh, and I think that's right on the nose of what you're saying, that this is Putin's not going to be able to control these people. He no. cannot win this war. No, um, no. Because, you know, as as uh, as he said to me, like, everybody now is getting to that place where they know someone who they've lost, you know. But yet still at the end, you know, he talked about the messages, yes, for Russians. You know, mm. they know they have to live next to these people, yeah. you know, one way or another. Um, so I think they're sorting through the the determination to resist with the recognition that, you know, there's still on the back end of this war, that's going to be their neighbor. Yeah, well, I'm excited to hear that interview. It sounds powerful. And, you know, look, President Zelensky has gone through a similar transformation in a couple of weeks, right? So let's start with his speech to Congress. So here's a clip from the end of his, I think, 15-minute or so address. At the leader of my niche, I'm addressing the President Biden. You are the leader of the niche, of your great nation. I wish you to be the leader of the world. Being the leader of the world means to be the leader of peace. These Ukrainians, man, they speak Ukrainian, Russian, perfect English. Yeah. God knows how many other languages. Um, that was the the end of his remarks where he spoke in English. He spoke in Ukrainian for the most for most of it. He also referenced Mount Rushmore, the attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941, the 9-11 attacks. Zelensky did an I Have a Dream riff and a nod to Martin Luther King. He also played a gut-wrenching, roughly two-minute video of sort of what Ukraine was like before and after the invasion that included some really graphic video of uh, wounded and killed civilians. Ben, you know, I think Zelensky has proven to be masterful uh, when it comes to tailoring his message to tug on the heartstrings uh, of the audience. He invoked Churchill during his speech to Britain's House of Commons. He was you know, directly appealing to Justin Trudeau in his speech up in Canada. It's also clear that he wants to sound grateful to the U.S. for all the support that's come through while also like strongly pressuring the White House to do more. Do you think that Zelensky like hit the sweet spot there? And uh, you know, any other takeaways for you from the speech, like a, as a speechwriter, as a yeah. human being? <laughs> no, I, well, yeah, speechwriter and human being. Um, I, I, as a speechwriter, I'm, I'm, I'm at the risk of like piling on the fan club here. I, I, I'm in kind of awe at the pace at which he's turning these things out. Yeah, um, man. Tailored speeches And I don't think day. he's getting, you know, I'm in the kind of speechwriter club here in America. I don't think this is being written by, you know, consultants somewhere. I, this is yeah. something he's doing with his team. And, um, you know, what he's tapping into, we talked about the generational aspect of it, you know, that he, you know, he's younger, he's he's not wearing a suit and tie, he's, 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 uh, he's someone who's communicating in ways that are familiar to us, you know, phones and Zooms. But like, Beyond that, he's tapping into a kind of populism. I, I had an article in The Atlantic recently, Hinge of History, that, that talked about some of this. You know, he's he's kind of remade populism. Um, you know, populism has come this kind of bad word. Yeah. Uh, it, it's kind of... Steve Bannon. Yeah, it's ethno-nationalist, right, grievance-based garbage. And it's like Putin is a populist in yep. a lot of ways, right? It's like it's all ethnicity and grievance and history. Zelensky is this populist of kind of idealism and community. And, and the one common thread in all of his speeches to these democracies is he's hitting our deepest historical chords in every yeah, country, yeah. right? And he's basically highlighting the gap between 
like who we say we are and like what we actually do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like uh, the, the words carved into you know memorials in Washington versus like the reality of are we really fighting for these things or yeah. we, we can't even get our shit together to like you know pass a law in the United States and these yeah. people in Ukraine are, are, are fighting and dying on the front lines for democracy. And it's kind of stirred something inside of our democracies about this is all supposed to be about something more important than our narrow partisan uh, objectives, which we'll get to in we'll this to conversation. That. You know, today he addressed the German Bundestag, the, the German parliament, and he re- went after them. Oh, really? Um, he hit the Holocaust. And, oh, yeah. you know, the, the words never again need to mean something. And he said, all we heard from you over the years when we were warning you about like Nord Stream 2, the pipeline was business, business, business. You care more about business than you care about democracy, basically, wow. was his message. Um, and you built a wall around us. Um, and he said, tear down this wall. So once again, <laughs> you, you know, like I love th- it. this guy, every country There's like goes a Forrest Gump vibe. He's got like a list, through. yeah. Uh, but the, there's a mentality too of like, this guy ran out of fucks to give like a long time ago, yep. you know? And yep. and you would too, obviously, if there were, you know, bombs and shells raining down on your totally. city. Um, but I think to your question too, like what was really astute is, you know, he knows the politics and so he wants to push, but he also wants to be grateful. And he said, I want this no fly zone and here's why. But if you can't do that, like I need all this other stuff, which is very smart, right? Because incredibly, incredibly smart because he knows, okay, I'm asking for something that I know you guys don't want to give me. So since I've set you up to let me down, well then, make up, make it up to me by giving me all this other stuff. Yeah, give, uh, give me the you know S three hundred missile. Me, yeah, defenses. give me the, the yeah. missile defenses. Give yeah. me the air. You know, and and I think that is really smart. And so, this is one of those things where the guy merits the the adulation he's getting. I mean, he's just like he's hitting every note. You yeah, know? like it's a big moment, right? I mean, I, I feel like sometimes words can take on an extra sense of meaning in the moments in which they happen if they're big enough. But I think he's rising to it as well. Zelensky also pointedly called on all U.S. corporations to stop doing business in Russia. And I think his lobbyists maybe called out Qualcomm specifically. He also proposed creating something called the U24, something called United for Peace, which is a union of these countries that will intervene to stop conflicts immediately. I understand the sentiment seems fraught um, for sort of if that's a military intervention. But um, you you alluded to this, Ben. So the White House, Congress, they're just plowing money into weapons and aid for Ukraine yeah. still, rightly. I mean, Biden signed a $13.6 billion assistance package earlier this week. We talked in great detail on Tuesday about this Ukrainian request for MiG fighter jets. And just an aside on that, I was reading this Department of Defense transcript, and the only thing they object to is the idea of Poland putting them in U.S. custody, and then then they get to Ukraine. If Poland just gave them directly to Ukraine, the U.S. says they'd have no problem with this. So it's a very confusing whatever is going on there. Yeah. But two new weapon systems that are now being talked about that caught my eye. One, the U.S. is sending Ukraine a uh, hundred of these small single-use drones. I believe it's called the Switchblade. Yeah. These the names of these things, which is so fucking gross. But um, they're similar to Javelin anti-tank missiles in that they can be used. They're really mobile, and you can use them to hit targets. Uh, like tanks or you know armor or whatever it is from the dozens of miles away. You guide them like a giant deadly paper airplane with GPS and model airplane, I mean, uh, and it blows them up. So that's one thing. Two, the U.S. is working to facilitate the transfer of the what's called the S-300 missile defense system to Ukraine. So there's lots of different iterations of the system, but the gist is a Soviet-era missile defense system that can hit targets at a much greater range 
than Stinger missiles, which are the shoulder-fired ones we've been talking about. So we're talking about targeting a plane that's 100 kilometers away, 18 miles high, like that kind of range. So but, you know, I remember first hearing about the S-300 system because Americans and Israelis were scared shitless that Russia was going to sell them to Iran yeah, because it would have you know, impacted our ability to bomb their nuclear program, basically. Um, some versions of this weapon system can actually also take out ballistic missiles and provide missile defense. So I guess Ukraine has some S-300 systems already. The military there knows how to use them. Bulgaria, Greece, Slovakia have systems they might be able to give to Ukraine. Slovakia, I think, said they would. So to your point, if you're not going to do a full no-fly zone, he's, his bargaining chip is send me this incredibly high-end missile defense system. And I think you could sort of do a partial no-fly zone, at least, with this thing. Yeah. I mean, I think that the you know the, the discussion around these things get kind of really binary. It's like, we're either doing the no-fly zone or we're not serious or something. Right. Uh, we just step back for a second. Like, the scale of what we're giving to the Ukrainians now, any tank weapons, any aircraft weapons, sophisticated air defense weapons. Thousands more of all of them. Drones. These are going to and are already destroying massive amounts of Russian military equipment, <laughs> killing Russian soldiers. Yeah. Like, we're in, you know? And and so people who, who you know, act like Biden's not doing it, like, this is, this is of a scale and lethality that, you know, I don't think anybody could have imagined a few weeks ago. And again, I think it's because of Zelensky's appeal because of popular sentiment, because of the success of the Ukrainian military to date, and the idea that actually they might be able to hold these people back. Um, and, you know, Putin's going to take this as, you know, and he already has, we're going to get to his speech, but like, you know, he's not going to distinguish that much between what, what's, you know, it used to be like, well, do we give them weapons that mm -hmm. can be used against the Russians, or do we just train them, or just give them equipment that is defensive in nature like this is like just like sliding the chips on the table yeah. and, and it feels like this is going to be ongoing given con congress's appetite to provide this type of assistance really glad you had that interview with derek cholet because mm -hmm. it was useful to understand you know we have a lot of this stuff prepositioned in europe as derek walked you through right. um in a, in a really helpful way um so that's how it's getting there so fast and you know the one thing i watched we talked about this a bit last time but like how do the Russians start to try to really stop the influx of these weapons? Um, do they start to try to hit border points where these mm -hmm. these things are crossing in? The, the the reality, though, is that this isn't a huge border between Ukraine and NATO countries. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's clearly going to be some opportunity to get 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 these systems in. But yeah, this is this is really escalating. It's a lot of a lot of weapons. Uh, speaking of escalating, Ben, did you see? that today Speaker Pelosi uh, read a poem for Ukraine that Bono had sent to her. I'm curious if you think that that will have more or less impact on Putin than Tulsi Gabbard's demand that he stop the war in the spirit of Aloha. Uh, <laughs> we love Speaker Pelosi. We're just we making do. a little joke. We and we like, you, we like you too as well. Uh, um, who I, 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 you know, I, yeah. I, They're I, not I, listening. I, you don't have to fucking defend you too. I, I don't know what to say about this. <laughs> I, I will say to just like to cover the ground, the one thing that's getting a lot of attention that actually is quite good is the Schwarzenegger video. You know, um, I, I you said that, but then I saw it was nine minutes. What does he say? <laughs> he like so. First of all, like the the um, the reality is he's huge in Russia, right? Because his oh, movies yeah. were like massive in Russia. Like he was the guy uh, coming up, and he what's powerful about it is he the entire thing is directly to Russians, 
And he talks about his affinity for Russians and his hero was a Russian bodybuilder, et cetera. But then he talks about his father being in the Nazi army and being Jesus. sent to Leningrad and being broken and getting there and realizing that he was fighting for lies, being physically broken because he was badly wounded. Is he part of like the siege? Yeah. And, and he's addressed Russian troops directly and he's like, don't want to end up like my dad. Wow. You don't want to end up broken the rest of your life. And it was like this, you know, you didn't think that he could be that personal. Like, yeah. um, so I don't know, you know, I mean, I'll say between Bono and Tulsi Gabbard and Arnold, uh, if you're going to watch one thing, even though it's okay. nine minutes, watch the short okay. Also, just a quick aside to all my friends on Twitter and the resistance and everywhere else, please stop calling Tucker Carlson and Tulsi Gabbard traitors and demanding that they be in prison. Like just chill the fuck out. You can criticize their speech with your speech. But let's not call for like martial law for Tulsi Gabbard. Well, the other thing I'd say is that like Tucker Carlson is problematic in that he has a huge platform yes. and creates this content that can be repurposed. Like Tulsi Gabbard is not um, an A-lister, you know. Um, yeah, she's just a person. She's right. just, you're actually raising her profile. Thousand um, percent. Tucker's profile is raised. Yeah, so he that, gets a lot of money from Fox. But Tulsi Gabbard, like, I, you know, a former like, couple term Congress right. woman from yeah, Hawaii. Yeah. I, mean, you know, I don't like her politics yeah. either, but like move on. Um, speaking of the escalating language, I mean, President Biden called Putin a pure thug and a murderous dictator Thursday. That tracks. Uh, on Wednesday, he called Putin a war criminal, which set off uh, a flurry of nerds correcting him because that determination has to be made by the International uh, Criminal Court or United Nations or blah, blah, blah. Um, obviously, Putin is a war criminal. His goons are bombing maternity hospitals and a theater with hundreds of civilians inside it that had children yeah. written in big text outside of them. The Kremlin whined that Biden's rhetoric was unacceptable and unforgivable. And fuck you. Yeah, fuck um, so then Putin gives this belligerent, authoritarian, like frightening speech where he says things like, quote, the Russian people will always be able to distinguish true patriots from scum and traitors and will simply spit them out like an insect in their mouth onto the pavement. Mm. Okay. He seemed to call out oligarchs who have voiced concern about the war uh, and called them, quote, national traitors who, I'm summarizing now, or more concerned about their villas in Miami or the French Riviera, quote, who cannot make do without foie gras, oysters, or gender freedom. That had like a, a bit of a Steve Bannon vibe there. Yeah, yeah. So Ben, the, the Financial Times reported that Ukraine and Russia have made significant progress on a peace plan. I guess my question is like, okay, I guess. I mean, I don't, I don't question the reporting. It was in the Financial Times. But how do you have any confidence in that process or Russia's willingness to abide by it after these attacks on civilians in that speech? He looks like a lunatic. Yeah. And just unpack these different components because they're all important. The war criminal thing is is important. Um, I like that Biden just said this. Me too. Uh, I was I won't name. Uh, I was on uh, on television after a Biden official who was asked this war criminal question, and it reminded me of when I was in government because the person was clearly instructed that they couldn't say this yet. Yeah. Because so people know there's a process. International right. criminal court right. has to make determinations. But like he's committing war crimes. We can right. see with our own eyes. He's targeting civilians indiscriminately. And what Zelensky gets that smart is Zelensky taped an appeal to Russian officials. Uh, and said, hey, you resign or else you're going to be a war criminal. And that is, it's not going to deter Putin. Um, but, you know, the idea that the rest of your life, you're going to be on some list of war criminals, you know, that that's just one thing you want to put in the head. I'm totally. not saying it's, everybody's going to quit on mass in the Russian military. But, I mean, you do want to plant those seeds. Um, Putin's speech was, like, really terrifying. Yeah. And 
you know, sometimes we like get numbed to this rhetoric from people like him. But the 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 key takeaway to me is this is incredibly dehumanizing rhetoric. You know, scum, yep. insects, like this is the kind of stuff. Gaddafi like. Yeah, and I don't you know, I don't yeah. do it lightly, but this is like Hitler, Stalin, yeah. Gaddafi kind of stuff where it's like rats, yeah. insects, you know, and the same thought. And that's generally been a pretext to like and he was talking about Russians, by the way. It's you know yeah, what like he fifth might column yeah, Russians, well, fifth right? column, what he might do inside of Russia to these people who are protesting, you know, the 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 terror he might inflict, not just on Ukrainians, obviously first and foremost, but also on Russians. It's some chilling shit. You yeah, know? man. Uh, this is a, a this, the the fascism is not behind any veil anymore. You right. Know? And and, that, and a reminder to all of us that you know it, it's a little harder on the Russians when we're demanding that they stand up and push back. This is what like. they're you know this is what they're they're risking right. And and to your point, that's not a guy who's like looks very serious about peace talks. You <laughs> know? Um, no. I mean, the notable thing in the Financial Times report to me continues to be that okay. If the positions that are kind of leaking out or being reported out mm-hmm. are true, the Russians have shifted from denazification, demilitarization, essentially like decapitating the Ukrainian government, to like you know NATO neutrality yep. and recognizing Crimea and no foreign military bases. But like yeah. so that would be a significant shift. But I, Putin does not look like he is actually <laughs> doing that. I mean, yeah. and, and Tony Blinken said today, like we don't we don't believe these peace talks are particularly credible because of the actions Russians are taking, what Putin's saying. And so, you know, it does make you think that like the worst case scenario of this dragging out still feels like the most likely one. But like we're dealing with, it's not that he's crazy. This is that, that irrational debate is I think the wrong debate. Like he is who he is and he's a fascist. Uh, Now I think he's also full of shit. If anybody wants to go watch Putin's palace, um, Navalny's video, yeah, Putin doesn't go to the French Riviera, but he has like the most expensive residence in the world. A billion dollars. With, I'm sure stocked with foie gras. And I think it had like strippers poles. It like, did. This guy is living a higher life than any of these oligarchs. Yeah. So like, let's put aside, you know, Putin trying to sound like some, you know, uh, Navalny-like anti-oligarch guy. Give me a break. Yeah, you know? Really? He's, he took half their money. He's reportedly worth like a hundred billion dollars. At least. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. If you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out, got this election coming down the pike, there's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crookedworld. Okay, so I need to get mad for a minute about Republicans and press coverage of the war. So I saw today Mitch McConnell is, fine, is teeing off on Biden. He's calling him slow. It's, like it's embarrassing to watch him compared to Zelensky. You get Republicans like Rick Scott, Senator Rick Scott, Brian Fitzpatrick, who's a congressman from Pennsylvania. They're calling for a limited no-fly zone. 
Um, all the Republicans are calling for more sanctions and then they attack Biden for high gas prices, right? Like that's the entry level cynicism that they're all doing. Yeah. What's driving me crazy in the coverage is two parts. So the Republicans are just weaponizing these bad faith attacks, right? Rick Scott says, we need a no-fly zone, but no one asks him, okay, write a bill, vote to authorize it. Like, would you vote to authorize it? Yes or no. Second, as as Glenn Greenwald, someone I you know disagree with on a lot of things, but I, on this, I think he's right, has pointed out, a number of leftists have pointed this out, every question that Joe Biden and Jen Psaki get, every question is about escalation. Why aren't you sending MiGs? What about a no-fly zone? It is constant escalatory pressure with no discussion about whether Congress would authorize these steps, whether more lives could be saved through a diplomatic effort. And it's like, it's giving me PTSD because Ryan Grimm, who writes for The um, the Intercept, went in there, yeah, asked about negotiations. Like some people were dinging Jen for not having more of an answer. Guess what? The negotiations would probably be secret right now. Yeah. But it was like so notable that only he had been asking. But it just, it feels like the same dynamic then of Iraq, Syria, red line. All, every question is some version of like, are you going to do more? Or are you going to be afraid? Are you going to be a wimp? Yeah. I think, yeah, there's, there's a lot that's frustrating about this. I mean, I, I think that, first of all, you know, the, and we have to do this um, as much as I'd hate to, to re- revisit it. Um, the, the leader of their party called Putin a genius on the eve of the invasion. Like, like two weeks full ago. Full stop. Like, we don't have to go down the Trump rabbit hole. And the, but like their credibility, you know, as you know, tried and true anti-authoritarian, anti-Putin types is is permanently compromised by the reality of the last five years we've lived through. Yeah. Um, that's the first point. I think the second point is that like, these are like really serious fucking times. You know, like yeah. we just talked about how Russia, the largest nuclear power in the world, is governed by a fascist who refers to human beings as gnats and is indiscriminately bombing children in Ukraine. And the Biden people are very are trying to walk this, you know, uh, tightrope of doing everything they possibly can to help Ukrainians defend themselves without unconsciously doing something that could tripwire us into a direct war between the U.S. and Russia. That, yes, the worst version of that war is the use of nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. But even the, like, even if they're not nuclear weapons, it's likely that even a conventional war between the U.S. and Russia is bigger than Ukraine. By the way, it causes many more Ukrainians to die. You know, right. um, I mean, just remember, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of U.S. troops yeah. are staged in Europe. Yeah. Right. So you could have cruise missile strikes into Russia, into Poland, into Germany. Like this, you could kill tens of thousands of U.S. troops. Yeah. And look, the counter argument, and you hear this in my interview you know, the Ukrainians are like, we're willing to take pay the cost. We're, we're willing to fight these guys. And the counter argument is that like Putin's army has been proven to be something of a paper tiger. And so, you know, if you come with the full force of right. data, but the, sure, maybe, yeah. but maybe, but maybe a, a Putin who's existentially threatened, because essentially if, you know, the U.S. is at war with him and already, I think he's existentially threatened. He just decides to go. I mean, the history of these fascist strongmen, right, is they burn it all down on the way down, right? right? And so the Baltics, Mold- all these other, pl- Moldova, Bosnia, all these places, Slo- the Slavic world, he just right. decides to have the reckoning. And he clearly doesn't care if people die. So th- to take it back, this is like Rick Scott, like has no idea what the fuck he's talking about. None. In- when it comes to like, how do you navigate 
this perilous path of doing everything you can to help the Ukrainians prevail without in, unintentionally getting into a much, much wider war that's much, much more destructive, yeah. you know? And, and, and the, the way in which kind of political journalists sometimes view this the same way they would view like the build back better negotiations or, uh, you know, some, you know, the Iran deal. Or, or like, even more directly, a no-fly zone in Syria. Yeah. Or a no-fly zone in Iraq in the early yeah. 90s. Those were big steps. But like those guys couldn't hit us with a cruise missile with a nuclear weapon on it. And yeah. by the way, there are smart analysts who think that NATO or the U.S. entering the war could actually throw a lifeline to Putin. Because all of a sudden, he can rally his country around fighting the Americans or fighting evil NATO in the way you can't when you're talking about killing your brothers and sisters in Ukraine, who five minutes ago you said were uh, you're going to reunify and rescue from Nazis. Now, I don't know if that's right, but like, Jesus Christ, in the in the briefing room, you act like we're one, you know, no-fly zone or Biden decision away from ending the conflict. Yeah, and I mean, I guess like it, it's interesting, like back in the Obama years when you know, this would always happen, right? And, and, and Syria was such a cynical one because they wouldn't vote for the, the authorization for these military force, but Congress, they, yeah. they would spend the next several years calling Obama weak. Um, I would, you know, when John McCain would criticize us like this, it was like, okay, like, you know, I don't agree with John McCain on foreign policy, but like John McCain has thought about these things for a long time. Rick Scott and Mitch McConnell have not. No. Like, and, and, and they are, they've proven themselves to be bottomless cynics and hypocrites. And to afford them the the kind of standing of like, you know, experts on this when all they're doing is trying to to harvest political gain out of it is grotesque. And it's, by the way, the same thing we talked about last time. Like, I don't think the Biden people should, and they're, I don't think they are, frankly, overly politicize this either. No. And be like, Joe Biden's such a great leader. No, they're can, not. You know, they're just doing their jobs and they're doing them as hard as they can. And they're doing a pretty good job yeah. at, at holding the world together and imposing these massive consequences on Russia. And and, and so th this is a dangerous dynamic to watch because, yeah, you just you don't want to trivialize the stakes of what we're talking about. Yeah. And pretty sure Mitch McConnell uh, specifically called for a no fly zone and then wouldn't vote for it completely uh, during Syria. Yeah. Yeah. So like, yes, just maximum cynicism, horrible human being, cannot stand him. You're seeing all these Ukrainian military reports that they're killing generals in the Russian army. They killed three generals, which is wild. Apparently, Russian generals get sent to the front to fight a lot. I saw that the Treasury Department uh, put more sanctions on Belarusian officials, including Lukashenko and his wife. I imagine there's sanctions to death anyway, but whatever. The Russians sanctioned Biden and Blinken and Hillary Clinton for some reason, yeah. much others. Yeah. Um, you know, and the Ukraine, you know, we've been talking a lot about the absence of cyber attacks. I did see one stat that the Ukrainian government said they'd faced 3,000 uh, distributed denial of service attacks since February 15th. Those are basically when you just try to overwhelm a network with web traffic until it crashes. So that's a grab bag for you. I, I just, I, I think that, I mean, first of all, I was in the first list of sanctioned Americans, which is weird. Um, it changed your life. Uh, it, but I, I, not at all. Like I, my ruble <laughs> investments are, are quite low. Um, and um uh, you know, the travel ban, you know, I might've gone to visit Russia. I don't know. Um, but look, I, I think the, the thing to watch is the Russian, what you said about the Russian military, like, first of all, 
we should note that the Ukrainian casualties are probably horrifying. I mean, I know, and they don't really, the they numbers don't are them. not giving any, you know, just Mariupol, like we have no idea how many people have died and it's likely many, many thousands, right? Um, on the other hand, the Russian casualty numbers are astonishingly high. Like the estimates, you know, you've seen estimates seven, 8,000. Yeah. Those could be low for all we know. Yeah. And that's, it's been noted that that's more than America lost in Iraq and Afghanistan. That's more than Russia's lost in, I mean, you know, since Afghanistan, I think, you know, I mean, it's just, I'd have to check how much they lost in Chechnya, but like, this is not something you can conceal from the Russian people. Um, And it's going to take time for that to sink in among Russians, because there may be like some delay in the reporting of these casualties, but they can't hide that scale of casualties. And, and, and so one thing to watch is just the sustainability of the Russian military operation not just from a public opinion standpoint, but just from like a attrition standpoint here, you know? Yeah. And Putin has said he didn't want to do call up reserves and do conscripts, additional conscripts, but you know, he's, he's suffering so, so many losses. It, it, that's, that's a barometer to watch. Does Putin have to go beyond the invasion force that he marshaled to just sustain this? Yeah. Know? Yeah. Uh, okay. We're going to, before we close the news section, uh, we want to play you uh, another clip. This is from Alexandra Vertraskova. She's a 21-year-old civil activist and international law student. She is currently on her way to Strasbourg to represent Ukraine as a youth delegate at the Council of Europe Congress. This is her talking about her optimism for Ukraine after the war. I think, I really, I really hope that um, Ukraine will stand uh, for itself and that uh, Ukraine will rebuild itself and uh, all of the people that are now uh, being refugees or asylum seekers, they will be um, more than happy to to come back to their, not, not, not to say their homes because most of them have no homes, but uh, we, I, I don't even know what is, uh, uh, going on with my home with my house right now but like uh even though we have no home we have a homeland right so we will manage i'm sure amazing optimism uh and uh another reminder of how badly vladimir putin underestimated the sense of civic identity yeah civic nationalism and patriotism and 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 the the young generation um that again came of age after the soviet union these people they know who they are, you know. Yeah. She does make a good point, which is, you know, we tragically we can't think about this yet, but there will need to be a massive rebuilding effort. And I hope that the, whenever that time comes, and hopefully it's sooner rather than later, that the desire to pump billions of dollars of weapons into Ukraine right. is matched by the desire to rebuild uh, Ukraine because um, yeah. they can't do it themselves. We got to match the uh, money going into the, the yeah. Raytheon account. One there. for one here, yeah. Yes. Uh, okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, you will hear Ben's interview with the youngest member of parliament in Ukraine. So stick around for that. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. 
but we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the friend of the pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. We are very pleased to be joined by Vyotoslav Yurash, who's the youngest member of the Ukrainian parliament, the Rada. Uh, thanks so much for, for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. So uh, let's just start w- with uh, where, where are you and, and what are the, what's the situation around you right now? I'm in Kiev. Uh, Kiev right now is a city that has cleared out Russian incursions that we had uh, and uh, battle is happening on the outskirts. Uh, basically, we're planning a trip tomorrow to the outskirts to one of the embattled cities, which took already too much. Yeah. Well, I, I, I'll come back to that. I wanted to start, you know, you, I think, uh, very powerfully, uh, a lot of people saw your tweet about your, your very close friend, Alexandra Kushinova, um, who, who died on Monday, the journalist who was working with an American, with Fox News, uh, 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 an, an American outfit, obviously. What, could you just tell us a little bit about her? I think it's important for people to learn the stories of uh, of the names of people that we see who are getting killed by by Russia in this war. What, what what's her what's her story? What would you want the rest of the world to know about her? Alexandra died telling the world of the crimes committed by Putin in Ukraine every single day. She was full of life. She was full of dreams, full of ambition. She wanted more. She organized many things, uh, musical festivals that she has done. She helped with film production in Ukraine. She was she helped with the Chernobyl HBO miniseries that you know. Yeah. Uh, she worked with many different organizations through her life. And she always showed herself time and time again to be driven, committed, organized, and uh, as somebody who has greater dreams and ambitions. Uh, she is far more than a friend. In the 10 years that we knew each other, we, we went through many things and uh, many stages and used many titles, but the reality is she was the dearest person for me. And uh, uh, she, she was always the person that I can turn to in any situation and ask. Uh, but uh, again, um, Russians killed her as they will kill so many every single day in my country. The, the drama situation is that um, thousands of Alexandras that will die today in Ukraine and thousands more that will die tomorrow. And uh, I'm very sad that uh, even though we have many things sent to us and support that is given and sanctions, the West is unwilling to use all its instruments and all, all its might to try and stop this madness happening inside of Europe. And... Uh, this murderous streak that Mr. Putin is on my country. I want to, well, we obviously want to get to what would be most important for you Ukrainians right now. One more question I wanted to ask, which is that, uh, you know, looking at your pretty extraordinary career, and you mentioned a decade, um, I think we all remember the Maidan and the Revolution of Dignity um, in 2013, which feels like a very long time ago. But obviously, people like you and Alexandra have lived this last decade from that moment to where we are now. Try to describe to, to people what, what that generation 
is and what it's done, you know, because I, I when I saw when I see the depth of your feeling for, for Alexander, obviously as a friend, but also I'm thinking about the events that have taken place in Ukraine, some very, very hopeful events and obviously some very, very tragic events. How do you explain, you know, uh, th- that generation, that Maidan generation to people? The reality is it's a free generation. It's a generation has been born after the Soviet Union of people like myself who only know independent Ukraine and yeah. only imagine in Ukraine in which they can function, they can dream, they can realize whatever ambitions, goals uh, they have. Ukraine has plenty of problems as any democratic state that is honest with itself. And um, we step by step, year by year, reform after reform, have been uh, trying to solve these problems. And uh, the reality is we were going on that path that leads to Western democracy, which uh, shall give all the citizens instruments to battle against whatever ills disturb their circumstance or their ambition. Uh, But again, it all changed because of the fact that Russia decided to destroy our statehood and destroy my nation. Mr. Putin doesn't regard our nation as in existence, doesn't regard my state as worth existing. And the point is that our generation is the living proof that he's wrong. And that's why so many of my generation have died in the war that went on since 2014 and will die in this war every single day. And the point is our generation will do everything possible to prove Putin wrong and to show to him that our nation is not just in reality, but so many are willing to stand up for that reality and even die for that reality because they don't want any other reality of any ambitions that he has for my nation. And you, uh, you mentioned, you know, your role right now. I mean, you're obviously, you know, parliamentarian, but it's everybody is basically in some way, uh, part of the, the resistance to this Russian invasion. You mentioned kind of going out and wanting to, to, to be with people, to support people who are more on the front lines. What are your plans for, for, for how you're going to help, um, you know, in the, in the days ahead? How do you think about your role in, in the effort there? Well, on the first day of the fighting, uh, every, every member of parliament who, who wanted to could receive their weapon and uh, try and join various parts of the battle. I did both, and uh, basically, even though I'm a rudimentary soldier at best, the point is everybody's a soldier now, especially in Kiev, that is the Russians trying to siege. And uh, my soldierly skills notwithstanding, uh, the point is that those people that I work with uh, in military matters, they, they know that as a member of parliament, I have the ability to get plenty of things that they need to conduct the war more effectively. So my point is to try and provide both military and humanitarian necessities to enhance uh, both our chances to win this fight and enhance the ability of population to survive this fight. So that's why I was sharing so much about the humanitarian missions that uh, I try and conduct to various embattled cities in um, in the Kiev region. And uh, it's it's in, in trips such as this, you know, it, it, it basically near the, near one of the towns that I was in, it's where uh, Alexandra, who's, again, I insist on this, she was far more than a friend. Uh, the word friend doesn't describe the depth of our relationship yeah. through the decade. Um, 
and the point is that's that's basically one of the it's just a drama for me because when you look at the circumstance of her death i i could have been there i could have been there because i've been plenty of those checkpoints i've seen plenty of shelling i've been to the minefields that are now uh, unfortunately uh, around kiev so the point here is that that's uh, it's just a drama that can affect any of us at any time. And with Russian cruise missiles that are firing on Kiev constantly, you never know what's going to fly yeah. into the window in the next minute. And so I think everybody has seen, you know, the, the extraordinary resistance, including the extraordinary military success um, uh, that, that Ukraine has had um, in at least repelling and slowing Russian advances and taking out significant Russian troops and equipment. Um, Obviously, we've had, uh, you know, from President Zelensky on down, calls to have a no-fly zone to close the sky over Ukraine. Um, you had an announcement yesterday from from President Biden of a pretty pretty big package of, of weapons, um, including surface-to-air weapons and, and anti-tank weapons. What, there's other issues like intelligence about where Russian forces are that the U.S. could provide. What, what you mentioned earlier that the West could be doing more um, what what specifically is is most helpful um, that's being done, and what more um, uh, would would you like to see done? So, I mean, the fact for me is, I listened to foreign affairs debates uh, in Western circles my entire life, and um, those Western debates about options on the table right now uh, for what to do in Ukraine are plentiful, and they first and foremost focus on the fact that Russian. Uh, point about the third world war and I think all consequences is a bluff. The reality is Russian economy is the size of Italy. Uh, Russia doesn't have the capabilities to overwhelm Ukraine, uh, much less the Western states, especially America. So the point here right now is when you talk about no-fly zone, or at least those MIGs, which are never-ending debate uh, in yeah. the Western world right now, that's the least of, from the options the West has in its toolbox. Again, if the West decides to do more here in Ukraine, Putin can try and reconsider because, again, he understands the odds he's facing if he faces the might of the Western alliances because this is something he cannot compete with in any way. So the point here is either lose all or push on. And the point here is if, if from the beginning, if uh, the idea of Western military presence wasn't taken off the table, that would give him pause to think about possible moves by the West to try and uh, preempt or push uh, him away from this ambition. But it's very clear right now the sanctions aren't enough. And as far as, again, the need in Ukraine, it's the need for everything. Because what we are doing right now is we are having a fight of our lives against the Russian forces. And we need that support in every way to try and sustain this battle moving forward. And that 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 needs all those people that already are coming to Ukraine from various countries around the world to partake in the fighting. But again, Western Alliance can at any point try to move in and try to show to Russians that they cannot do as they please in destroying my nation, destroying our cities and causing the largest war in Europe since the Second World War and the destroying, attempting to destroy the largest state in Europe. Yeah. So the, I, I, I think it's important note for our audience to hear, which, which includes people in a lot of those foreign policy debates in the sense that, you, you know, you clearly, you do follow these debates. 
uh, if the the concern basically is uh, among people who are cautious about this, including President Biden, that that direct military confrontation with Russia could risk um, nuclear escalation. I think it's worth noting that you're essentially saying, because Ukraine would be the place where that would be most likely to happen, right? The use of a tactical nuclear weapon. What you're saying is you don't believe that that Putin would do that. And and frankly, you're in some ways willing to take that risk, right? I mean, that that that's kind of what I hear you saying. He is grinding our nation right now. He is killing at least 20,000 people are dead in Mariupol. Uh, from yeah. the words of the deputy mayor, 80-90% of the buildings in the city right now have been hit by one kind or another kind of artillery or other means the Russians have in their disposal. We have attacks on all the sides. So the point here to stop this madness it's important to call Putin's bluff and to show him that, again, the West will stand by and watch as uh, Russia destroys and kills in this uh, unscrupulous fashion. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it's a good point. And, and, and I, I, uh, I, I know that, that the intent is to try to support uh, as much as possible um, while weighing this question of escalation. Right. Uh, but I, I wanted to ask you, I. I What's so impressive to people, I think, is this, uh, you know, Ukraine is on the front lines of, of the democratic world right now and is giving expression to a kind of civic nationalism that is, is truly extraordinary. I mean, our societies have trouble coming together to do anything. And it feels like you mentioned at the beginning kind of being a part of this generation that was born in freedom and independence and or in independence, at least, and really claimed freedom uh, post-Maidan. Um what is the sense of the coming together there? Because it, you know, politically, obviously, like anywhere else, there are factions, but it just feels like this extraordinary um, expression of, of of civic nationalism, of Ukrainian identity. Um, uh, how would you how, how do you explain that to people? And 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 how do you how, what would you want to say to people around the world about uh, what what they should know about Ukrainians today? What choice do we have? We have, again, we love our country. And that love is challenged right now by somebody who wants to destroy that which we love. And uh, that was the initial motivation that essentially immediately made all the recruiting stations and barracks around my country full, all those army units full of new people who want to join to this battle and want to fight against the Russians and who did everything possible to show to the world that we are not taking this lying down. Those people who went out on the streets in the occupied cities with nothing but Ukrainian flags to show that this is something they will not accept. That was the initial wave of all this. But now when every one of us has a person they've lost, has have a person they don't know what happened to them or have per people who have dri been driven by this conflict uh, away from their families and friends, it's the desire for justice as well. Uh, it's the fact that we cannot let this crime go unpunished. That's why, for example, when I looked to Alexandra, my dearest Alexandra, who was killed mercilessly by Russian artillery, I immediately tried to get the information about the forces on the other side and army units that are stationed there to, in one way or the other, and the future is big, to bring them all to justice for what they have done. But again, it's just one person. And there are so many of these people who have perished already in this conflict. We are receiving, uh, we, our Facebook right now is full of people mourning their dead, talking about people they've lost. And because of that, our nation feels one thing. 
defiance. We cannot let this go unpunished. We cannot move away from this reality they've caused on us. And we must do everything to make that sacrifice, to make the sacrifice worth it. So the point for yeah. us is that we need to fight on to make all that which we lost matter. Well, with that attitude, I, you know, the, the, there's no way that Putin can win the war because he can't, you know, he can't subjugate an entire country that has that attitude. The one last question I want to ask you is then, what do you say to Russians? Um, I mean, obviously Putin is Putin, but um, if you could speak to the Russian people, um, what is your message to them? I tried, actually. I, I, I actually spent a good chunk of today debating with other people from my hometown of Lviv in Western Ukraine, which you hear so much about in the news because it's one of the central refugee hubs to which many Ukrainians are fleeing or through which many Ukrainians are fleeing to Europe. I spoke with uh, all Russian opposition, actually. They had a marathon uh, before, before social media was shut down in Russia. And actually, I spoke to them a day before the invasion. And my message was very simple. It's about the fact that Mr. Putin is an aberration. It doesn't have to be the rule. And they have the power in them to make this horror stop at any point, not just for us, but for them as well. And again, in any future that is there, we need to find yeah. something that remains after all this loss and death. And believe me, it's extremely hard and painful even to speak about this because so much was lost already. And when, when I, we think about our ancestors who survived much worse and given to us this independent state, we understand that we haven't even started yet this battle for our existence. And the point here is that as far as Russians are concerned, they have in, in their hands defied the odds to show to history that they matter as well, not just dictators like Mr. Putin, or they can fall together with him. So show that, show that in every way you can to make that madman realize that he is not in control of this nation, which can have a different path. Yeah, no, uh, it's it's an extraordinary history of Ukraine. And uh, uh, way back when my family started there, um, I, 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 I uh, well, they, 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 they started around Odessa and then, uh, you know, in the pogroms, they moved to Poland and then to the United, the Jewish side of my family um, ended up uh, moving into um, Poland and then ultimately to the U.S. But I, I have to say, I just want to tell you what, what you've accomplished in, and since 2013, you know, um, is extraordinary. I mean, I, I think people need to appreciate that um, the revolution of dignity and the assertion of of a belief. You know, we in America like talk a lot about democratic values, and we don't live up to them. Um, and what you guys are doing is forcing people in democracies um, to see the gap between people who risk everything for those values that we talk about, um, and 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 the, the rest of the democratic world. And I think that's why you've stirred so much, um, but more needs to be done, as you say. So I really I, I have a lot of admiration for you and your generation, your cohort. I'm, I'm terribly sorry uh, at the loss of Alexandra and uh, I wish you the, the best in the, in the days to come. Hopefully we can keep in touch. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to speak with you. And thank you for caring about this story and telling the story to the world and to America. Thanks again to Vyatoslav Yurash and Alexandra Vertrakova. Uh, anything else, Ben? Anything else you got going on in your mind? <laughs> no, I, uh, 
this is like, uh, I, I mean, I, I, I think that there's a, it's interesting to, to, to kind of settle into this, just being the, the reality and then, you know, uh, that we're going to be living in and, um, it, it, you know, when you hear the kind of people we heard from today, it's just like, uh, it drives home for you. Like we, we shouldn't take our eye off this, you know, no. um, uh, not that we would, but, um, this is going to be a transformative uh, event in world history, and and uh, and and the Ukrainian people are showing us what can emerge on the other end of it. And They're not going anywhere. Putin is also showing us what could emerge on the other end of it. Yes, he is. And also, uh, one one last thing I, I noticed in some of the covers is a State Department cable that apparently mentioned that in, in Lviv, in western Ukraine, they found a stash of like stuff that Russian operatives have hid. Some of it was only dress military uniforms which they think were intended for a parade, which was going to happen right after the victory. So it's just this further evidence that like yeah. Putin thought they literally would have waltz in there. Yeah, there's one of the uh, pro-Russian Ukrainian politicians who's really tight with Putin. I think uh, Putin is like the godfather of his kids. Um, this is <laughs> one of the guys that they thought was going to be installed, uh, could have been installed as the president of Ukraine. Nice, you know, nice re wrong assessment, Putin. They went and found at his kind of residence it recalled uh, Viktor uh, Yanukovych, the pro-Russian president of Ukraine until 2013. You know, he had like that exotic zoo animal. Like thing. golden toilet. And so stuff. this guy, uh, Medvedchuk, had um, a railroad car, like a gold-plated railroad car restaurant. Like, you know, those like like those old-fashioned, like, super fancy dining cars. Like, I hate these people so well, much. I mean, these people fucking suck. You know, I mean, like, that's, like... like <laughs> how much money do you need? How much money, how tacky, like, how <laughs> full yourself to be to be like, <laughs> oh, Trumpy, really. I want to uh, entertain some people in, like, a 19th century railroad car restaurant. Um, Get a hobby. Yeah, <laughs> give me a break. Okay. Well, on that note, that's it for oh, us. Oh, one more thing, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> the U.S. has not sanctioned Roman Abramovich yet. Weird. Like, let's get Why? going, uh, guys. Uh, one more for the let, designation list. Here, let, let's right? dig into that next yeah, week yeah. and uh, the weirdness around uh, Israel's treatment of him as well. So uh, look forward to that. Oh, and our friends in the UAE. Uh, okay. That's where a lot of these uh, oligarchs are washing up. Creeps. All right. Talk to you guys next week. Posse of the World is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our producer is Haley Muse. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to Saul Rubin for production support and to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, Milo Kim, and Amelia Montooth, who upload our episodes as videos at youtube.com slash crookedmedia.